Hello, and welcome to an EG's Office Politics Special Edition, with me, Piers Wayner. Earlier this month, I interviewed Michael Heseltine, or Lord Heseltine, I should say, seeking his thoughts on regeneration, levelling up, Liverpool and leadership. And what he had to say was so interesting that we thought that you would want to hear as much of it as possible. So what follows is a lightly edited recording of that interview. We've pretty much just cut the bits where I speak too much. Or cough. Enjoy. Hello. Good morning, Lord Heseltine. Good morning, yes. Good Thank morning. you for doing this on the phone. Oh, no, that's quite all right. Actually, I've got a, a horrible cough, so I would have been uh, appalled if I'd given it to you. So this is much, <laughs> much the best way. Well, you know, they haven't yet found a way of communicating coughs by electronics. <laughs> Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. The phrase that, that came up um, referred to you as the granddaddy of regeneration. But how, how, do you, how do you feel about that particular subrigate? Well, uh, it's a lot better than many I've had. <laughs> um, do you have a, a favourite nickname? Because you appear to collect oh, no, them. No, I don't go into any of that sort of stuff. The General no. of Regeneration was another one. I well, I, well, I'm not going to run away from that. <laughs> but um, uh, I, I am interested in the subject, and it has been a privilege from my very earliest ex- political experiences to be involved in the... Um, not just the theory, but in the practice. It's an exciting job. I mean, I, 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 I was deeply, well, people, the cabinet secretary talked of my team and myself when we came back from Liverpool in 81, as people transformed, and we were. There was no doubt whatsoever that that experience, involvement in local communities and local decisions and the most acute of social and economic deprivation. It, it was transformational. Is localism the fundamental for regeneration? Is that the, the thing that you need in place? I'm just thinking about what you did in, in Liverpool, in, in London, the LDDC, etc. Well, that the, like, two, the, 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 <clears throat> the London and Liverpool undoubtedly were, in my term, for me, the, the transformational moment. And... They're, they're different in this very obvious sense that London, which was the one that in, where, where, where the inspiration came, you just had 6,000 acres of dereliction and just the, and, and, and a limited number of council uh, buildings. Um, and it was quite obvious that you had dereliction on a huge scale, pollution as um, yesterday's industries had gone. The docks had gone downstream, the, uh, uh, the gas and electricity had been modernized, um, and, you, and, the, and the detritus was left behind. So there was no obvious strength on which to build. Um, indeed, it, it was even more dramatic that the children of the council tenants left behind, they'd gone as well because they'd gone to the new towns and they'd gone where they could buy their own homes. It wasn't possible to buy a home in the East End of London at that time. So it, there was a vicious circle of decline. Everything that could regenerate had gone and any force that, that could regenerate was extinguished. So it, it was quite obvious what needed to be done and, and it was a simple set of decisions that led to the Development Corporation. Development Corporation uh, is, yeah, I, I, I'm quite pleased to have been part of it, but if you think, to get the thing in perspective, basically it was a new town commission in an urban area. Uh, just as the new towns were a very successful post-war development, bringing those strategic powers back into the declining urban areas was a logical step, which we did. But Liverpool was very different because, well, there was 600 acres of dereliction. That is perfectly true. And that that led to the development corporation on the banks of the Mersey, and that was a 1979 decision. But that's not what people remember about my experience in Liverpool. It was the riots of 1981, which took me to Liverpool. And having got there, one did the only and obvious thing to do, which was to talk and look and think. And it became quite apparent 
that there was no one doing something like that. There was no leadership. There was nobody in charge uh, with effective uh, ability to take decisions. So very rapidly, having spent three or four days listening, as I said, people began to say, what are you going to do? And in order to answer that question, you had to find answers. And uh, after about three weeks, I came up with a list of about 30 things that I thought could be done and would show a, a sign of optimism. But the lesson of that is not so much the things that I decided to do. It was the process by which I found those things. Yeah. And the process involved talking to people, looking at strengths on the ground, searching out why derelict sites were derelict and what we could do and finding solutions. And so it was that in 1981 that persuaded me that, that real devolution, real leadership, real power and resource at a local level, real relevance to the circumstances was what we should be doing. Party pol politics played virtually no part in what I was doing in Liverpool. Um, of course, you could have had a great row about this, that or the other, whether it was public or private sector, you could have all these arguments. But actually, faced with a piece of derelict land, there's a limited range of things you can do. First of all, you have to own it. Secondly, you have to have resource to clear it. And thirdly, you've got to have partners, probably from the private sector, but not always, who are going to put something on it which will prove useful in job creation. There was no party divide about this. I, I can't remember any serious issue when I all those different schemes that we did, and there were about 30 of them. I can't remember any opposition from anybody to any of them. Um, indeed, in, in one respect, one of the most successful of those schemes was uh, what happened in Cantrell Farm in Nosley. And to reinforce the the, the, the non-partisan approach to this. It was the Labour leader of Nosley, uh, Dick Lloyd, I think, um, who came to me and said, look, you're looking at all these issues on Merseyside. Will you look at Cantrell Farm, which is a local authority um, uh, state? And we, we're, we, we, we don't know what to do. We've tried everything, but it's actually rat infected, it's got violence, it's got uh, uh, social breakdown, and it's got about 30% occupancy, and people won't stay there. So um, I, I said to him, look, I, I would like to look at that, but I would ask one thing of you. If I come up with a special solution that involves what you, some of your colleagues might feel is a doctrinal Tory-type private sector solution. You won't oppose me. And he, I remember what he said at once. He said, we've tried everything. I can assure you, if you come up with a solution, we will not oppose it on party grounds. And nor he did. And what I did was to persuade the Abbey National Building Society and Barclays Bank to take over ownership of it. Um, uh, today, it is known as Stockbridge Village Trust, and it's a, a transformation uh, we put a, a builder, Tom Barron, in charge, and uh, over the years, the place was transformed. Laurie Barrett of Barrett's Builders began building private sector houses in the area. But the, the significance of that experience, which was based on work on the ground, talking to people, how can we cope with this, and, who, and, and, and essentially, who is going to lead the change? created what I, I, was regarded as one of my most successful innovations, which was called City Challenge, which came 10 years later. And here we applied all these sort of theories that I'm propounding to you to the clearance of slums across the country. And we, we, we it, it, looking back, it's quite simple what we did, but it was very controversial at the time. We invited 30 local authorities who had slums in their area to compete for 10 packages of £35 million, which they 
would use to renovate and restore decent conditions. And uh, that was controversial. A, it was competition. B, 20 were going to lose. And uh, anyway, the conditions were simple. You would have to show that for the extra um, $7 million a year, you would, the local authority could raise extra money from either the private sector or from other resources. Secondly, they had to show a structure with a leader and an executive team to manage the process. And they had to consult the participant communities, the tenants themselves, the police, the educationists, other people who had a stake in the area. 10-1, the next year, the 20 had lost, had been off to look to see how the 10 had won, and it transformed the bids they then put in. So at a micro level, at, at the most stressful of social conditions, these theories worked. With Liverpool, when was the moment where you could see that what you had done had made a difference? Mm. <laughs> that's that's. Um, I don't know there was a moment, to be honest, because, you see, it's not the way the world works. One minute you're up to um, the, the, the speed with what's happening in Liverpool, and uh, literally, uh, I... I went there every week for 18 months to, to as a clerk of works, supervising each of these projects in my 30-page loose-leaf notebook. Um, and the next minute, I was Secretary of Defence. And, you know, I had a totally different range of issues and was completely absorbed in, in, uh, in all of those. Uh, so Liverpool sort of went out of my mind from 1983 on. Um, um, and then, um, well, they were kind in inviting me back, I have to say, which is very nice of them. But um, it wasn't until years, years later that I became focused again on Liverpool, and particularly when I became Secretary of State uh, again in 1990. Then, then I did get back into the Liverpool scene. And was, was the transformation quite profound? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. No doubt whatsoever. Well, I, 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 another example, which goes, is, again, puts the time concern. David Cameron, um, when he was prime minister, asked me... I wrote a report in 1981 called In Place. It, it took a riot, because that's why yes. I went to Liverpool, and everybody knows it. Um, David asked me to write a report in partnership with Terry Leahy, who was also a Liverpudlian and, of course, a very distinguished industrialist, commercial figure, um, revisiting Liverpool. And we did. And the transformation was amazing. When I first went there in 81, the question was, what are you going to do? And, and no one had any answers. Everyone knew what was wrong. It was always somebody else, never them. In 19, uh, I suppose it was 2016, something like that, uh, they just queued up to tell us what they wanted to do. There was a terrific spirit, and all Terry and I had to do was to make notes and take account of what, they, what plans local people had got. The transformation was absolute. Now, at what point, at what point between 1981 and 2016, uh, you can't escape the huge investment that the Grosvenor State made in the centre. Uh, a lot of European money went into Europe. Uh, sorry, European money went into Liverpool. Um, but I think the fundamental thing is that they found their guts, they found their spirit. Did you feel, did you kind of know that what you were doing not know. Did you feel that what you were doing, the approach that you were taking, that it would be successful? Or were you thinking, well, everything else has been tried, this is probably worth a shot? No, I, I didn't I didn't feel I felt it would work. I was absolutely convinced. I indeed I, I think my my feeling was, why on earth hasn't this all happened before? I mean I was confronted with things with some things well, the, the Anglican precinct beneath the great Anglican cathedral 
had been the subject of controversy for Yonks. And, um, uh, you know, here, here was this derelict site. And um, uh, I can't remember how long it took me to, to get agreement, but it wasn't that long. Um, but no one else had been able to do it. No, probably, I think it's so easy if you want two different opinions, for the two opinions to sit in different rooms and say it's all the other guy's fault. The, the, the trick is to get him in a room and say, look, what are we going to do? Is there an issue with, with any of these great regeneration projects that people want to see almost immediate change, almost immediate Yes, there is an issue, you're quite right. And, and it's best to be upfront. There are no short-term fixes. If you have the sort of areas we're talking about, they, they are part of a vicious circle of decline. It, it escalates, um, and, and it takes many forms, but they happen. People don't want to live there. The middle-class professionals don't want to move into those areas, doctors, teachers, whatever it may be. Um, the, doc, the, the investment in companies, they start investing somewhere else. The skilled leave the areas because of a better paid job somewhere else. And once you get that sort of stigma associated with an area, it feeds on itself. So trying to transform that is not easy and it's not short term. Uh, and none of the projects in which I've been involved have taken anything other than a significant amount of time. I remember vividly, <laughs> I created the London Docklands Development Corporation in 1979. And two years later, I called in the chairman, Nigel Brooks, and I said, look, I've invested quite a bit of political capital in this uh, endeavor, and um, there's nothing to show for it except the resentment of the local authority tenants. Uh, and we had a very frank conversation. There was nothing. He said to me, look, if you want me to spend some money, I can paint the churches in the area because I can do that now. But once you've got into the detail, you realize the first thing you realize is that nobody can do anything without planning permission. To get planning permission, you have to have a proposal to apply for. And the consultation processes of doing all this take time. And then you have to start the process itself. You have to let the contracts. You have to start the builders on site. And so basically, except in the most sort of superficial of ways, you're talking about three, four years before people can begin to see something rising from the ground uh, and believe on the, uh, that it's on a scale. Do you think um, things that... that give optimism, give communities a sense of optimism, uh, are a vital part of that phase of regeneration. I think that's absolutely right, and that is why you have to have a leader, someone in charge, to say, this is what we're going to do, this is what I'm, how it's going to be done, and to be there day after day after day saying, we've taken the first step, now the second. And it's not easy. And there'll be critics saying, oh, no, you know, it's all waste of time, waste of money, da-da-da. You can have all the criticisms. Um, but my experience, well, I, I, I remember in, in, in Liverpool in 1981 at the time of the riots, I had already announced the Garden Festival, which was going to play a significant part in the regeneration. And I remember a local person in 81 shouting, give us jobs, not trees. <laughs> I mean, there was no effective answer to that. There were no trees, although, of course, years later, the festival was so successful that they wouldn't use it for redevelopment, which was the purpose of the whole thing at the start. But so, yes, you have to be prepared to take the flak, um, and, and the flak is, is much more easily absorbed if there's a credible person who knows what they're talking about on the ground to argue the case. And, and that thing about that transformative moment, those moments where you where you see that a local area gets the idea of its own potential, that seems to be a sort of a fundamental part of, of regeneration yes. that's, that's not particularly tangible. It's not sort of something that you can say, well, that's going to cost £10 million or that's going to no, take... No, you, you can't put a... Oh, well, there's another important thing about that. 
you cannot predict what's going to happen. I mean, uh, if I had um, made a speech in 1979 saying that Canary War was going to come to London Docklands, Excel, the Dome, City Airport, they'd have locked me up. They'd have said, this guy's just go off his trolley. You can't tell what's going to happen. Um, uh, you, you can create the conditions in which often people you cannot predict in come and offer to participate. But what you have to have is the conditions and above all, a person in charge. Do you think that the challenge of regeneration has changed substantially? No, I don't. I think it's, if in anything, anything, I think it's more, more dramatic. I mean, we're facing the disaster of Brexit. And uh, if ever we needed transformation before Brexit, but with Brexit, it's even more de despairing. Um, I mean, it's quite interesting about Brexit now that I read quite carefully the uh, Brexit-supporting newspapers, and they're all broadly agreeing that Brexit has been a disaster because we haven't done Brexit. <laughs> Nobody's claiming the last six years have actually been a sort of wonderful a triumph or something has happened that is going to transform our fortunes. The argument now is we haven't done it, we must get on with it. Well, of course, that's a fallacy because there is nothing to get on with that they're going to be able to achieve. What they should be doing is this re-energizing of the local economies with devolution. And I have to say that although there's still plenty of talk, um, the energy behind it seems to have gone out of it. And I think, I think uh, again, uh, it's so easy to point fingers. I think that if you go through a process of as many prime ministers as we have in as many, there's a few months or a few years as we have, the dynamic of government just disappears. Uh, and I think that um, with Mr. Sumac, we have now a situation where sanity has been restored. And uh, uh, the regeneration drive will not emerge unless he puts his full weight behind it. The baronies of power will not cede power. Uh, until they're forced to. And there's only one person who can actually make that happen, and that's the Prime Minister. Since David Cameron, who had, of course, an extremely close working relationship with George Osborne, since then it has been a, a, a much less driven process. Boris Johnson claimed that levelling up was going to be his great legacy. Do you think that levelling up will be his great legacy? His great legacy will be the disaster of Brexit. Well, I mean, I, you cannot have spoken as I have for the last few minutes and think that there's any serious levelling up agenda which is associated with Boris Johnson. There's been a lot of talk, hasn't there? Do you think that, that there has been, in your mind, has there been any action? There's been a promise of an awful lot of money and yet very little money has actually been handed out. There's been... Talk well, of, it, well of, it's worse than that. The, the, uh, under, under George Osborne we at least saw the beginning of the creation of a single pot so that um, it, it, uh, the, the consequence of the, of the Whitehall hegemony is that the money is, depart, is, is uh, uh, located in specialist functional departments. Mm. And um, so what it means if you're a local leader, a local mayor, you have to make about nine phone calls to find out if you can pursue a particular plan, which is a, an interrelationship of the spending department's money. What George Osborne did was to top slice, uh, I think, housing, transport and education into a single pot so that local mayors can bid for a scheme that embraces a much wider uh, area of activity than uh, a simple simple function uh, and, and that's absolutely essential I mean if you're going to get a, a regeneration of an economy you don't do it by just doing housing or doing transport you do it by having a strategy for the area and the local economy you're dealing with and that means you have to have um, a, 
a range of different activities, all interdependent um, of each other. Um, uh, well, once George Osborne went, the uh, single pot went, and it's not and it's not come back. Well, Michael Gove's talked about wanting to combine the various pots that are under under his jurisdiction, and and I think he was also talking about combining them with transport and, as you say, education. Um, do you think there's a, enough movement on that? Well, no, I don't, because you see, I mean, you take education and skills. I mean, how, if you want to be generating an area, one of the first things that employers will ask is, can we get the, the, the right workforce with the right skills? And the mayor will have to say, well, I'll talk to the central government, see what they say. That's no good. That's not an answer to the question the employer wants. He wants someone to say, I will deliver, or I am already delivering. So one of the first things that, that should be done is, and it did, it did exist, I'm not sure whether it still does, you need a powerful cabinet committee of the various functional departments under one cabinet minister to draw together these various um, funds and pool them for the facility of the local economy leader to bid. Uh, you need to replicate that cabinet committee at civil service level in each region so that the, the mayors of uh, Greater Moses Island and Greater Manchester know that there's a team of people to whom they can relate in, informally in discussing ways forward, who know their patch as well as they know it. And um, that doesn't exist. Do you think that we currently have, on a, in terms of the, the, from the state, do you think that we currently have the right approach to regeneration or do you think that something fundamental needs to change? We just do not have the drive and the commitment so the first changes, the first big changes are in Whitehall. Yeah. The nature of the support given by the cabinet, and that can only come from the prime minister to, to a powerful committee who have their own civil servants working in teams at proximity to the local economies themselves. Uh, it, it's, it, could be, it did exist. I mean, that's, that's what's so awful. I mean, the, these things all were there and they've gone. Uh, and it, it it would you know it would take 24 hours, frankly, to recreate such a structure, uh, and it would send a signal uh, that was valuable. And signals are important in this case. I mean, there are uh, you will know, I will know. There are quite a lot of places in the country who are looking at, anxious about, thinking about how to move to a um, a mayoral authority. But they don't get enough encouragement, and and without encouragement, they are left with all the doubts and difficulties and local criticisms that have caused so frustrating in the past. Would you think that would do it with that shift? Oh, I, I mean, it, I, I have the slightest doubt that if the prime minister put his mind to it, and in fairness to him, he's not been there very long, and he's got the most formidable array of problems. So, um, I. I, I I'm travelling with hope, but uh, um, it, it, it has. It can only come from the top. Um, this and that's why David Cameron and George Osborne and Greg Clark were so important. They were fundamentally in agreement, and they were getting on with the job. We've, since that, we have never seen anything to replicate it. Indeed, we've, we've in time and again, the single pot has gone, the apparatus has gone, uh, the drive has gone, and. Uh, um, uh, the, 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 that's that's what's got to be put right, and, and the only person who can really do it is is um, um, is the prime minister. There was a prime minister who claimed that that's what they were doing. I mean, again, I'm going back to Boris Johnson. So, what went but wrong? He wasn't. That, was, he, he wasn't. I mean, Boris's life is one long claim. He was going to get Brexit done. He was going to set the country alive. And, and all that, but it's all platitudes. There was no substance. The, the observation you made about about the disjointed approaches and saying, you know, okay, we need investment in housing here. We need investment in in business development here. 
Do you think that that ideas like the the free ports plan, um, the investment zones uh, proposed by Liz Trust, the the regeneration zones, are these are these another more examples of that piecemeal approach that doesn't really work? Well, they are all they have all got in common the one lacuna. In order to make regeneration work, you have to have control over the essential ingredients and that starts with land assembly planning land acquisition and then access to the funds that can finance the changes that you want the 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 sort of things that you're talking about they lack that total coherence and their weakness therefore is that we take free ports, which there's nothing wrong with the idea of a free port, but it's wrong to think it is the solution to the problem we're talking about. Because when you, when the new, the new investors come along, they will want to know about what other investment is going to take place. They're not, they're, nobody's going to build advanced laboratories or sophisticated offices if they think that all around them they're just going to be sheds with import-export goods. So you have to be able to talk about the, the, the totality of the area if you're going to attract inward investment. You have to be able to talk about schools and educational standards. Um, so I fear that what has driven so many of these, uh, these initiatives that you've asked me about is the belief that the private sector on its own can cope with the problem. There is not a shred of evidence to believe that. Of all the regeneration schemes I know, it was partnership that was essential. And the better the partnership, the better the human relationships, the more encouragement you got locally. So people just saying, I mean, we had this argument in 1979 with my old dear friend Jeffrey Howe. He wanted to have an enterprise zone in the London Docklands. And that was a good idea, but it wouldn't have worked on its own because nobody would have been able to answer the fundamental questions about who's going to be building alongside me. And it was Reg Ward, who was the chief executive of uh, um, the um, London Docklands Development Corporation, who refused to abandon the quality planning constraints that he thought were essential. Um, so he, he preserved the high quality of uh, land assembly and planning and environment that made investment attractive. And Paul Reichman would simply not have put his fantastic offices into an area unless he'd had those guarantees. So the, it's the interrelationship, I've constantly come back to this point, between the public and private sectors. And another one, which which is equal, is part of the same thing. Great tracts of urban of regeneration today are in the hands of quangos. And yet there is no duty imposed on the quangos to cooperate with the strategy of local mayors. Again, it's another reflection of the power structure of Whitehall, because the quangos, of course, are the answer to Whitehall. Do you think that, that too much is being expected of the private sector, or do you think it's that not enough is being expected or driven by the public sector? Well, I think that if you start off on the, asking those questions, you get yourself into a great intellectual debate, which may be very stimulating and, uh, and, and partisan, but it doesn't help you with the problem in hand. The, the problem in hand is best resolved by going to the areas concerned and in the absence of anyone to talk to, think about what can be done and who can help. But preferably talk to the person in charge who's already worked all that out and has built a coalition of, of energy and, and enterprise. It's quite wrong to think of enterprise as something associated just with the, with the private sector. You can be an enormously enterprising vice-chancellor of a university. You can be a very enterprising head teacher of a school. 
And so well, it's important to recognize that enterprise is a characteristic of human nature and that it can be found in every different form of human activity. Uh, what you're looking to is, to is to find those strengths that build a community and bring them together to multiply their advantages. One of your earlier companies was, was a small property developer. Do you think that that informed the way you think about these challenges? Uh, no, I don't think it did. I mean, we, we did property development. It was very exciting. And uh, um, I hope we did a very good job. But I don't think... It was, it was Liverpool that really, really transformed my views on all this. It seems that that, that that fundamental thing of going there, of as, as you said again and again, going there, asking the questions, speaking to the right people, finding that, out what that is... That was fundamental. That was just, that, you know, we all, we all have our own backgrounds. I mean, I come from a conventional middle-class background. I had a private education. And um, so a lot of the thoughts, a lot of the experiences, although I lived in South Wales and knew something of what the other side of the world looked like, uh, there's no substitute for actually being forced to face the, the, the logic of it all, the, the pressures of it all, and, and to try and find ways of reversing the, uh, the assumptions that often underlie the other side of the argument. Do you think quite a lot of the, um, the approach with the with the leveling up agenda that there's a is there too much of that kind of top down this is what we think that you need approach well, i mean the, the, the worst example and I, I i accept this is a trivial point but it it's somehow symptomatic was the announcement a few some time ago of a hundred million pound fund to enable local authorities to clean the chewing gum off their streets now i mean how, what sort of initiative who dreamt up that as a way of pursuing a leveling up agenda? But but it's 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 symptomatic because I mean and you've asked all about these enterprise zones and and reports and all not enterprise zones investment zones and and reports uh, and they all they all have this top down whiskered approach. Someone in Whitehall has worked out the way, mm. not just to sort of produce some incentive but to, to produce an incentive frankly that is acceptable to one side of the political argument that says it's all about enterprise it's all about the private sector uh, set them free and they'll sort the problems it's just not real in, in, in the moment you get involved in what's made regeneration possible you realize the poverty of that argument you've said that uh, you have hope faith optimism in uh, Rishi Sunak and his his leadership. It seems that that it's taken a while for that to be restored for you um, over the last, since 2016, do you think? Was it since Brexit that that, that fractured? Well, Brexit is a disaster and, and it was based on a pack of lies. And, and, and this is now even more clearly uh, evidenced by, if you read the Brexit newspapers, they're all... We must get on with it. We must do it. We must mm. introduce all the things that we said. It, no one pretends it's worked. No one pretends any good has come of it. But the more, the longer it goes on, the more the Brexit ministers they put in charge, the more they say, if only we can get on with it. Um, and, and uh, well, of course, one knows that there is no upside for Brexit. It's all downside. And so the least we should be doing is trying to make the best of our local econ economies. Uh, and there is a great opportunity there. There's no doubt about that. And I hope that uh, Sunak, who is, uh, he's confronted with some of the most acute problems of any prime minister, and he's got them in spades. You know, there's not just one big problem. He's got his strikes, he's got the cost of living, he's got Ukraine, he's got uh, uh, the health service. Um, um, and he's got the immigrants, and um, you know that's that's a formidable agenda. Uh, I think it's, it's taking the trouble to think through some of the harsh realities that face our country will bring his mind to bear on this regeneration issue. 
But he seems to have a, a bit of a problem keeping the party together, doesn't he? That, that that's, that's the point. That is absolutely the point. And it seems that regeneration, those that agenda, is suffering from it. House-building targets, there's been a U-turn on that. The the other U-turns within the levelling up bill um, over, over planning. It, it seems that, that that might be an area where things start to drift. Do you think it's it's hard for somebody with, with all of that on their in-tray to, to be able to focus on regeneration and and everything associated with it to, to give it that necessary... I, I think it's perfectly... I mean, I, as I observe what he's doing, he's trying to bring sanity to bear and he's trying to get enough time so that he can become deeply immersed in the details of these issues. We're seeing, I think, fortunately, much less photo opportunity and um, much more concentration on intense research and, and conversation. And that's, that's to me, reassuring. There's, there's a feeling that there's, that there's a responsible leader in charge genuinely trying to grapple with these issues. And uh, from my point of view, I think that is right. Uh, I think it's impressive. And I have every hope that he will come round to the regeneration issue and come round to the views that I hold. I mean, I suppose the, the the problem is he's got a limited amount of time in order to convince of people course. that they're feeling happier about their lives and their lot. After the next election, say um, the Conservatives don't win, what what hope do you have of the the current Labour Party and their approach to these issues? I haven't seen anything that gives me uh, any indication of what they genuinely would do. Do you think that's because they're, they're waiting until they get closer to an election to detail well, policies? There is an old saying in opposition, never have policies. Because if you've got any policies of any good, the government will steal them. And if they're bad, then the tabloid press will crucify you with them. So wait until you can see the colour of their eyes before you come up with policies. Now, that's a highly cynical view, but uh, uh, you can understand the logic of it. <laughs> I think it's probably spot on. <laughs> that's, you know, if you, you go to central urban area, whatever you like, and you say, what the heck are we going to do to help here? You don't... You know, you come up with a whole range of different programs and they don't fit neatly into the dogma of party politics. Have you been asked to, to share your what you've learned from your tenure as, as Environment Secretary? Have you been asked to come in by, uh, by Michael Gove? I know that you were, you were asked to come in by um, Grant Chaps. Uh, I have spoken to Michael, yes. Is he following the same path as you? Do you, do you feel that you've got... Um, that you've got a kindred spirit? I think he understands the problem uh, and shares the ambition, but his problem is whether his colleagues uh, share it uh, and whether the Prime Minister shares it, and that I cannot know. If he doesn't, we shall continue to drift. Um, but he can point out the fact that in the course of the last uh, month or so, there have been a series of new announcements uh, of uh, um, authorities m moving in the right direction. The thing we haven't discussed is, is climate change and how that fits into this. The Skidmore review came out and we've seen various other things. Does that have a fundamental impact on how we go about regeneration and what we do? I think that that moves on to the subject of industrial strategy. Hmm. Um, and uh, undoubtedly, there are huge opportunities uh, associated with... Uh, um, the investment that uh, climate change will demand. The question is, well, you know, you're now back with uh, the lunacy of Brexit. We should be advancing the best European standards um, in order to give our industry a chance to compete in the, the market across the channel. But in order to do that, we need exemplars of our own performance and um, uh, that will mean, of course, a huge government support for whatever strategy they believe to be relevant to meet the targets that uh, we've uh, signed up to. 
one one area I know a little about is water pollution, and um, there have been some uh, very sad revelations about this recently. Uh, again, my experience, it all comes back to Liverpool, and that night looking out of, over the Mersey, the open sewer running through uh, the heart of a great city, and I, I created a vision of cleaning the Mersey from the source to the sea, and I'm delighted to see that uh, Steve Rotherham, the Metro Mayor, has now taken on where I left off, where my project left off, uh, with a tough target. But there were two approaches, you see. There were those who say, intervention. This is interfering with our companies. You don't say it, but you then say, effectively, can go on polluting. Or you say, they're going to have to invest in what is necessary to stop polluting. Give them a long enough time that actually they would have to replace the capital equipment almost certainly anyway. But then you take the different view. You say, but this is going to make the Mersey one of the world's leading examples of clean water in a city. And what opportunities that create? Well, first of all, it creates jobs for consultants who come in to tell you how to do it. Then it creates jobs for small businesses that can use the clean water that wouldn't dream of doing so now. Then you think about sporting opportunities because you've got a great clean water. And so on and on, you see the upside. And, and, and uh, housing and businesses, people who know how to live there. Everything, water, it all, it's, it, once you get into the cycle of expansion, improvement, environment enhancement these things all flow but they're not just private sector they're public sector as well that fusion of public sector and private sector that that approach of of taking a a sort of a a balance is it a non-partisan approach do you think or is it just a a recognition of well i think the extremes of both party um don't accept it that's the problem because it's a question of how powerful the extremes are. Um, uh, I haven't the slightest doubt that, um, I'm not going to get into party politics, but that Keir Starmer has a problem with parts of his party who really do regard the uh, the, the right wing, the, the enterprise culture of the private sector, as in, in some way, um, uh, well, I'm not going to put words into their mouths, but you all know what I mean. And I'm afraid that the same sort of approach is to be found on the extreme of the Conservative Party, uh, who, who, who really do believe that the private sector can lead these great social changes. It's quite refreshing, isn't it, when you see um, a, one of the, the Metro mayors, uh, for example, one of the Labour Metro mayors saying, we're perfectly happy to work with this government as long as we get the things that we need and we get it done. I mean, that that kind of putting party politics to a side and saying, let's achieve a goal. I mean, it sounds very much like we, what you were talking about with Liverpool. Well, that's exactly right. That, uh, um, you know, I, I know quite a few of these metro mayors and uh, um, I knew Joe Anderson, who was mayor of Liverpool, when mm. uh, Greg Clark did the initial deal with him. And uh, the potential to get to, to work together in the greater interests of their cities is 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 a paramount obsession, a preoccupation, um, and and uh, it's one one can share. <laughs> it, it, it's unthinkable that uh, 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 some outdated dogma should stand in the way of, of a genuine partnership between people. Do you think that Brexit, has that had a, a fatal impact on our ability to, to regenerate left-behind areas? No, I don't believe that because uh, um, the, the, the ingredients of regeneration are there. Uh, what is missing is the human dynamic. And uh, uh, whilst it would have been easier without Brexit, it's still possible with Brexit. Indeed, it's urgent, even more urgent because of Brexit. It was complete, I mean, madness. It was phony, but deception, I mean, it's worse than madness. It's a deception. It's a deliberate attempt to deceive the British people against their best interests. The investment programs are are held. We've had this awful series of movement from one government to the other. The chopping and changing of ministers, I mean, 
you can't you just can't run an economy with any degree of optimism and success if you're constantly changing prime ministers and changing ministers do you think that um, that you did enough while you were in office did you do as much as you felt you could I, I think you've asked two questions did I do as much <laughs> as I felt I could the answer is yes did I do enough the answer is no um, and the difference between the two is the political reality, which is as stark today as it was in in 1979. It feels to me that there's there's still an awful lot that the the people that we have making these decisions, there's an awful lot that they could still learn from your experience, and that maybe they're not making quite so much use of that as they possibly could. Well, that's for them. They all know my views. I've written it all down. Okay. <laughs> I've produced report after report. Um, and uh, I've nothing to say that's not already clearly in front of... I mean, uh, you know, the people involved in, in, in this process, they all know what I think, and most of them agree with what I think, mm. but it's leadership in the end. If you were asked to come back, firstly, would you? What, um, 90 years of age? Yeah, I don't see why not. <laughs> I must say, you, you've handed over your, your business to your son, haven't you? So, so you must be at a loose end. Um. <laughs> well, I, well, I don't feel as though I'm in a loose end, to be honest. <laughs> that, uh, I'm, my company, I, I have an interest in that. I have a garden, and uh, um, I'm writing a book. Uh, people like you were kind enough to invite me to talk to them. <laughs> is, what's the book on? Is it, is it just a... a a general life of, or um... no? Well, you see, curious enough, my my book, Life in the Jungle, mm. uh, was published in uh, the early part of the century, and then I got brought back in by David Cameron. <laughs> uh, so I spent a lot of time, uh, and I was put in charge of all sorts of projects, and there's all sorts of other things. That my wife and I wrote our book on the garden in 2016 yes. well there's been a lot of changes since then um, and Haymarket has transformed since then so there's an awful lot of, of stuff which uh, I'd be quite happy to you know record and of course there's Brexit <laughs> what we haven't yet seen is resentment but it will happen it will happen well in the words of somebody very wise it took a riot <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, nice to talk to you. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>